Just accept that. God bless you. Anybody else here this morning? God bless you. During the worship time, here we are, we're worshiping the Lord. Nothing's orchestrated, nothing's planned, nothing's no attempt to move emotions or to move people in some carnal way. And you sit in your seat and you listen to these people sing these songs to God. Like they know Him. You see virtually an entire room stand. To give him praise and to give him glory. And the world looks at that and says, those people are crazy. But when you sit in a room like that, and you experience a move of the Holy Spirit like that, that's God's way of telling you, you're home. This is the truth. Now walk in it. And maybe it isn't the Christians who are crazy and limited in this world. Maybe you're the one that's missing out on everything that's just one little decision away from having that become your reality and your relationship with God. One more moment. Anybody else? God bless you. One more moment. Anybody else? Those of you who are standing, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. And if that prayer represents what you want to say to God this morning, then you just repeat it after me. You don't have to shout it out, but say it aloud. It's just a public profession of your faith to him. And you're just going to put your trust in Jesus and invite God into your life, which he is going to do at your invitation. So just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust in Him as the full and satisfying payment for my sins. And I honor you by doing so. I give you my life, Lord. All of this life. And all of the life to come. To use for your purposes and your glory. Come into my life now. Make me one of yours. 
Thank you for saving me this morning. And thank you for making it a free gift. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to pray for you. Father, thank you for each one of these men and women. Thank you for the voice of your Holy Spirit who is able to speak to us in so personal a way. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being a part of their day, of their salvation. And we pray, Lord, that you baptize them now with your Holy Spirit, giving them the power to live a life like Christ in every environment they will ever find themselves in. And we pray that you take your holy word in the hands of your Holy Spirit and open this book up to them, Lord, and cause them to marvel at what you reveal to them, Lord, and then make everything they read their daily portion and their relationship with you. We commend them to you, Lord, and now bring great glory to yourself through them. And, Lord, use their lives to bring great pleasure to you as well. Thank you, Lord, for what you have saved them out of. Thank you for what you have saved them into. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand together. The Holy Spirit tells us in verse 21, By man came death. Death does not and did not have its origin in God. God never intended that a single person would ever experience this thing called death. And the existence of death in the human condition breaks the heart of God every bit as much as it breaks our hearts at the loss of someone that we love or as we watch the inevitable approach of death toward each and every one of our lives. And the shortest verse in the whole Bible is a witness to this. And the shortest verse in the whole Bible is found in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 35, and it's made up of just two words. And the two words are, Jesus wept. And he wept in a graveyard where his friend Lazarus had been buried four days earlier. And he's surrounded by this great mass of people who loved Lazarus, family members and friends. And he's watching them weep. And he's watching them attempt to deal with their loss. And when Jesus wept, he didn't weep for Lazarus because he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a moment or two. Jesus wept over the very existence of death in the human condition. He wept because he knew that when God created man, it was never intended that we would experience death. It was never a part of the original program, but that it was introduced into human history through the fall or the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God had never intended that a single person would experience death or what we feel at the loss of a loved one. 
And as Jesus looked at all of those people weeping and mourning over their loss, he was filled with that knowledge of that. This was never intended to be. And so he wept. And his heart filled with a great compassion and a great sympathy toward us because of the consequences of the fall that we all bear. Death was introduced into the human condition, into human history, by virtue of the sin of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden. And someone might protest at this moment in this teaching. And I think the Apostle Paul anticipates the protest. He knows it's coming in the passage. And someone might sit here this morning and say, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I don't believe in original sin. I think you Christians are crazy. I think it's all mythology. How can you believe what you believe? How can I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man is true? What proof is there that I am a descendant of Adam, that I am fallen as the Bible teaches? God's not afraid of the questions. And he has an answer. And he answers those questions with one word. And the word that he answers those questions with is the word death. Because we die, God doesn't go into some long, tedious explanation of it. He encapsulates it in four words in verse 22, in Adam all die. And death reveals each and every one of us to be a direct descendant of that ancient Adam. Death ties each and every one of us to that ancient Garden of Eden. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Holy Spirit declared, Therefore, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. That's God's explanation for the origin and the existence of death. What is your explanation for it? And every thinking person ought to have an explanation. Every thinking person needs to have an explanation. Some time ago I did a Google search posing the question, what is the atheist explanation for the origin of death? And so I began to read page after page after page after blog site after site after site after site, atheist site, page 1, page 2, page 3, page 4, page 5, page 7, page 10, page 15, page 27, on and on it went. I read and I read and I read and I read, and nowhere could I find the question answered. In fact, I couldn't find one place in which the question was even asked. It's almost as if that community, in that community, death is just simply accepted as a cold, hard fact without any intellectual curiosity as to its origin or without any serious or determined attempt to discover its origin. 
And I would contend that there is no greater explanation for the existence of death than the one that God gives in the first three chapters of his book, of the Bible, the first three books, chapters of the book of Genesis, where we have the record of the creation of man and then the fall of man from that original creation, including the introduction of death into human history. And I am thankful for that revelation. I am thankful that God is not afraid of hard questions. I am thankful that God welcomes hard questions. I am thankful that God delights in answering hard questions. I think the great mystery in heaven among the angels is that greater questions are not being asked by man of God. He is not afraid of any question. In fact, God himself declares that no God or no master passion in a person's life, whether that be a person, place, or thing, is worthy of being followed or worshipped if it cannot give an explanation for the origin and the existence of death. Almost all religions and almost all philosophies They wax very, very eloquent concerning what happens to a person at the moment of death or what happens to a person after death. And why are they so bold to speak about what happens to a person at the moment of death and after death? And the reason that they feel so bold to do it is because there's no risk in doing so. After all, if at death you discover them to be wrong, it's too late to do anything about it. You can't come back and shout, their whole philosophy, the whole religion, it's nonsense, it's bogus, it's all fairy tales. Don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about because you're dead and it's too late. To follow any religion or any philosophy's teaching on death or the afterlife, which does not give you a verifiable explanation for the origin of death, is asking you to live by a blind faith concerning one of the most important issues we'll ever face in life. And if a religion or philosophy, whether it is my own philosophy or someone else's philosophy, cannot supply me with a verifiable explanation for the origin of death, which I can then put to a test, then why would I ever believe their speculations about what happens at the moment of death and after death? God put it this way through Isaiah the prophet, the Old Testament, as he spoke to the children of Israel related to all of the nonsense and all of the false gods and idols that they were worshiping at the time. And he kind of gave them a God test, a test by which they ought to put their God to and not worship any God that cannot pass that test. God said, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth, that is, these idols, and show us what will happen. And then for our purposes this morning, God said, let them, sh- let them show 
the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things to come. God said, any God worthy of being worshipped or called God ought to, number one, be able to tell us the future in advance with 100% accuracy, but also be able to answer all of our significant questions about the past. Again, questions like, why are we here? How did we get here? How did all of this get here? Why is there death? What is the origin of death? And if a God cannot answer those questions, then that God of that philosophy is not worthy of being followed. Well, having established the Bible's explanation for the origin of death, let's move on to question number two, and that is, is there an answer for death, an antidote for it, a victory over it? And thankfully there is. We're told at the end of verse 21 and that that answer is found in Jesus. And in our text, we're told that just as Adam brought sin and death into the human condition, Jesus brings righteousness and eternal life into the human condition. And Paul was rebuking false teachers in Corinth with this simple logic. He was saying, in essence, if one man's sin, that is Adam's, could bring death into the human condition, which none of them disputed, then why does it seem so unbelievable that one man, that is Jesus, could bring resurrection and everlasting life universally into the human condition? And our passage further informs us that not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but he's become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep there, verse 20. In other words, he is not only resurrected, but he provides all who believe in him with a resurrection. That's what we need. I don't need Jesus to be introduced into human history to flex his muscle in the face of death and conquer it for himself if that victory can't be a shared victory. If it leaves me with no answer to death, no victory over death. But Jesus provides all who believe in him with resurrection. That first term, first fruits, that's used there It describes an Old Testament offering from Leviticus chapter 22 where a first portion of a harvest was to be offered to the Lord in the form of a sheaf of wheat or barley or grain. It would be brought to the temple. It would be brought to the tabernacle, the beginning of a harvest, before the harvest began, and that would be offered to God. And it was to be weighed before the Lord as an expression of thanksgiving. The date prescribed in the Scriptures to the first fruit offering is very, very significant. It was to occur on the first day after the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is, on the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This would have been on the 16th day of the first month of the Jewish religious calendar. So you have the Passover representing Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins occurring on the 14th of that month. And then the first Sabbath, the Saturday, 
on the 15th began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then on the following day, Sunday the 16th, they were to celebrate the Feast of First Fruit. And all of it was an Old Testament picture of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. That just as this Feast of First Fruits was celebrated on the Sunday, Following the Passover, so too Jesus was resurrected from the dead on the Sunday following the Passover, the day that Jesus was crucified. And the point that the Holy Spirit was making here through the Apostle Paul was this, that just as the sheaf of wheat that was offered to God on the Feast of first fruits would be just as that piece, that sheaf of wheat that was offered to God on the Feast of first fruit would be followed by a great harvest, so too Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of our resurrection, our victory over death, and our everlasting life. Our resurrection from the dead, our victory over death in the future is as sure a historical fact as the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead in the past. And that's as sure as it gets. One day during Jesus' public ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they came to him and they asked him for a sign. They said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Why were they asking for a sign? What was the purpose of it? They wanted some miracle, some demonstration of Jesus as an evidence to fortify his claim to be the Messiah, to be the, God, the Son of God and God the Son. And it wasn't like they needed more miracles or more signs to testify to the fact that Jesus was and is the Messiah and the Son of God and God the Son. There were signs all over the place. From the north of Israel to the south of Israel to the east of Israel to the west of Israel, the whole land was filled with people. The blind were seeing, the lame were walking, the lepers were cleansed, the deaf were hearing, the dead were raised, the poor having the gospel preached to them. All a witness to his claims. But Jesus conceded to give them one more sign. For their sake, no. For your sake and for my sake in this room, and Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. And what sign did he give them? The sign of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights only. He was speaking of his resurrection. 
just as God had prophesied through David a thousand years before Jesus was born in the Old Testament, Psalm 16, verse 10, where David wrote to God, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, that is your Messiah, to see corruption. A thousand years earlier, God had declared through David that when the Messiah came into the world, he would die but that he would not stay in that dead condition long enough for his body to experience corruption. What was Jesus communicating in all of this? What does it have to do with us today? Jesus was communicating to every single one of us in this room, No matter where we've been in life, no matter how old we are or young we are or educated or uneducated or whatever we are, Jesus was communicating to each and every one of us to make sure that your God has conquered death and don't trust in any Savior or any Messiah or any salvation that has not conquered death. And only Jesus has. The Apostle Paul, again in his letter to the Romans, he declares concerning Jesus that he was raised because of our justification. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus put God's stamp of approval upon Jesus' message and his teaching that man is justified or saved or forgiven of our sins through simple faith in Jesus Christ. And during Jesus' public ministry, he had declared that by way of his death, he would provide the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. He said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the hour of his crucifixion came. And Jesus died just as he said he would in order to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But how can we know that what he said was true? How can we know that his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God? that he really can provide salvation and forgiveness of sins. And God's answer is the resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of his Son for the forgiveness of sins and that our faith in him for salvation has been well-placed and that we will never be disappointed for having placed our trust in him. And then finally, question number three. How can I make that victory over death, that salvation, mine? And we make it ours through faith, through trust. There was a group of people that came to Jesus during his public ministry, a significant group. 
And they came to Jesus with one great question. They were thinking people. They asked Jesus, What shall we do that we may do or work the work of God? What must we do that we may work the work of God? And they came to Jesus with the presupposition that somehow we make ourselves acceptable to God and acceptable to enter into heaven on the basis of doing. What shall we do on the basis of works? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And they come to Jesus as a Jewish rabbi They want to know what his answer to the question is. What must we do in order to make ourselves acceptable to God and acceptable for heaven? And they've got their pen posed. They've got their yellow pad out. And they are waiting for a list. In their mind, you get to heaven by doing. And they are ready to write down the one thing, the three things, the ten things, the hundred things that they anticipate might come out of Jesus' mouth. And Jesus' response to their question was this. He answered and he said to them, This is the work of God. I mean, their pens are burrowed into that page. We're ready. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him. Whom he has sent. That's all. That's all. Salvation and forgiveness of sins and a victory over death and reservations to one day stand in heaven itself personally is a gift from God that we receive by trusting in Jesus as the full and satisfying payment for our sins. You cannot have a sure salvation that is based on man because we're too unstable. You tell me that I will get to heaven on the basis of trusting in Christ and these three things, I will fail in those three things. And disqualify. I don't care how easy you make them. I will fail in them. And that's why Jesus, when he was on the cross providing us with salvation, he cried out on the cross, it is finished. God has provided us with a finished salvation because that's the only sure foundation, one that is 100% loaded toward God, that he makes a gift to us. Because we can hardly flub that up. Someone might say, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. There's something in us. There's something in us. That religious thing in us that somehow we think we can improve on what God has done. And so, all right, I'm going to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, but I'm going to do X, Y, and Z as well, just to kind of bolster it, make it stronger. You can't make it stronger. You can only make it weaker. 
if it were by that way. You say, it seems too easy. When you put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are doing the single greatest thing that you can do to honor God and to bless His heart. You can't do a million things and wrap them all up together and have those things even remotely approach what it means to the heart of God Almighty when you say to him, I will put my trust in your son for the forgiveness of my sins. How do we receive that forgiveness and that salvation? By just coming to God in a room like this, anywhere really, and saying, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe that you are so holy and that heaven is so holy that but one sin in my life would disqualify me for heaven and disqualify me for a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son into this world to die on that cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And I believe that he is the full and satisfying payment for my sins. And so I put my trust in him for that forgiveness in his death, his burial, and resurrection. And when you do that, the greatest miracle that can ever occur in a human life occurs, and that is God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes inside of your life and you begin a personal relationship with God. And it's all there for the asking and for the receiving. And all of the greatest needs in our life, all of the true needs in our life, are provided for us in Christ. Our sins forgiven, a relationship with God, the confidence that we will never, ever die. Jesus, in that same scene of the graveyard where Lazarus was being buried, spoke to Mary and said, And whoever lives and believes in me, shall never perish. Believest thou this? Whoever lives, that's you in this room. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never perish. Believest thou this? Somebody says, I've known many Christians and I've known them to die. No. You only think that's what you saw. Because you saw it from the haze of this side of things. What you saw was a Christian move. 
No Christian ever dies. We never die, not even for a nanosecond. Our relationship with God never ceases, not for a nanosecond. At that moment, what you saw was a Christian now laying down a body on this side of the veil in order to be further clothed with a body made by God and made for eternity and made for heaven. And in that instant in time, faster than it takes a ray of light to go off of a human eye and reflect off that person moved out of that body and into the new body, as the Bible says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what you saw, but you only saw it from one side. Christians never die. We do move. Dale Moody, a famous evangelist of years ago, he said, someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. He said, don't you believe a word of it. He said, at that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. And that's the truth of it for the child of God. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, it is very important to give some thought to death before it comes. Because it's coming. You think about how many people in our culture all around the world faithful and diligent to invest the necessary time in planning their career path, planning for retirement, planning their next vacation, everything but preparing for death and the life to come. Think about how how backwards is the culture and our priorities and our thinking. And there's only one preparation for death, and that is faith in Jesus, because he's the only one who has conquered death. And Paul closes this great chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, with the words, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have our need of victory over death. God's provision for that need. And now all I have to do is simply receive it. Because God will never force you into a relationship with Him. He has already demonstrated He wants that relationship in the most remarkable of ways. But you must make that decision on your part to then begin that relationship. Let's pray together. Before we pray and as we sit here in a spirit of prayer,
I just want to give anyone here one, two, five, ten, how many? I don't know. The Lord knows. But I don't want to close our time up here today without giving you an opportunity to receive the gift that God has provided to you. And if you sit here this morning and this is the very first time you have heard these wonderful things or if you sit here today and you've been raised all your life in church and never ever trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins here's your opportunity to do it And if you'd like to do that, I just simply ask that you stand where it is that you're seated. And if you stand, this is what I will do. I will lead you in a simple prayer to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we will pray a simple prayer over you as you begin your new life with God. That's all that we have planned for you. Somebody says, I don't like this. I don't like the whole public side of it. I don't, why do we have to stand? It's interesting to realize that when Jesus called people to follow him, he always did it publicly. Always publicly. And so this morning, if you would like to receive this gift from God and the victory of death that is bound up in everlasting life, you just stand where it is you're seated and I will pray with you and then pray for you. Simply stand. There's a lot of people in the room. Forget about them and forget about me. It's you and the God who created you that knows there's an eternity after this life that you must plan on and you must prepare for who is calling you to make the loan preparation necessary and that is to trust in his son. Listen to your creator and do what he tells you to do.